Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet author Webb Hubble, whose recent Jack Patterson legal thriller is The East End. Bill Clinton, 42nd President of the United States and co-author of The President is Missing, says that The East End is a powerful, authentic thriller set in a real place with a story about the real health care needs of people who can't afford it and the real danger to good people when public corruption threatens the rule of law and respect for facts. He calls it a great read and an important warning. We start the show with Webb reading from early in the book where attorney Jack Patterson is facing a life-and-death situation for unexplainable reasons. The man who first met me on the road spat and said, you came home one too many times, Jack. Who are you? What's going on? I figured I already knew. He spat again and grinned, this. His heavy fist landed square on my jaw, and this. The toe of his boot struck right between my legs. A pain like fire coursed through my lower body, and I thought my brain would explode. When I came to, two men were holding me upright by my arms. The pain emanating from my groin distracted me from feeling the pain in my jaw. I coughed and sputtered, trying to recover my wits. My assailant was dancing around me like a boxer, trying to decide where to strike next. The men holding me up were laughing and egging him on. Enough, a voice came from the darkness, and my assailant backed off. Any sense of relief was quickly dashed by the next order. Get the rope, the voice barked. Before I could react, someone threw a hangman's noose around my neck, tied my hands behind my back, and covered my mouth with duct tape. Two men dragged me underneath what I was sure to be the hanging tree. Still dancing and grinning, the first guy threw the other end of the rope over his sturdy limb. It was useless to resist. There was no sense trying to remember faces or voices. Where I was going, it wouldn't matter. The voice from the dark spoke again. People who die in these woods are seldom found. Most likely, critters will eat most of you. The others had backed off a little, no longer laughing. The duct tape kept me quiet. But my eyes asked one question. Why? Sorry, Jack, you don't deserve the satisfaction of knowing why, but I will tell you how, the voice answered. 
I wasn't sure I was interested, but given the circumstances, I had little choice but to listen. Besides, my instincts told me to keep him talking. Maybe a miracle would occur. If there was ever a time for the new Madrid fault to shift, this was it. The man's voice interrupted my prayers for an earthquake. For a good lynching, we raise you high enough so your big toe touches the ground if you stretch. For the first few hours, you'll tiptoe and jump, trying to keep your feet grounded. Every time your ankle relaxes, the rope cuts into your neck, and you choke and gasp for air. After a while, your ankle cramps and your toe can't touch the ground, and slowly you choke to death. Then again, you might get lucky. A bear might find you first. I know Clem was itching to give you a butt whipping you deserve, but I want you to wide awake. It's a shame Clovis didn't meet you at the airport. I got another rope with his name on it. Every inch of my body clenched. I squirmed and tried to fight, but it was useless. Before long, the noose tightened and my body rose. String him up real careful, boys, like I showed you. I heard the words but could only focus on breathing as the rope burned my throat and my feet searched for the ground. My mind was alive and working, but my body was in a panic. Who was this guy, and how did he know I was coming to town? Webb Hubble is a nationally recognized award-winning author and popular lecturer on the U.S. criminal justice system, politics, and government, writing a novel and life lessons from sports. Webb held executive positions in government and industry, including Associate Attorney General of the United States, Chief Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court, Mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, and Executive and Chief Counsel for a Washington-based commercial insurance company. His most recent of the five books in the award-winning Jack Patterson thriller series, The East End and The 18th Green, come with strong reviews with words like captivating and you aren't going to want to put it down. David Rudolph, a local criminal defense and civil rights attorney featured in the Netflix series The Staircase, says of the 18th Green that it is an intriguing tale that harkens the reader back to the days of Oliver North and the Iran-Contra affair, where Hubble masterfully weaves his familiar characters into this new plot. Webb's previously published book is Friends in High Places. It's an autobiographical account of his rise at a young age through the Arkansas political system and explores his successes and failures there in Washington, D.C. as a member of Bill Clinton's administration. Born in Little Rock, Webb played football for Arkansas and during his senior year as Razorbacks were winners of the 1969 Sugar Bowl against undefeated University of Georgia. Webb and his wife Susie have four children and seven grandchildren and live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, um, you know, right off the bat in this book, Jack Patterson's in trouble. He's in big trouble. <laughs> He's being hung. <laughs> yeah, it looks like there's no way out right off the bat. It yeah. looks that way. Yeah. So 
Well, most of your life you lived in uh, Arkansas and then uh, D.C. and now Charlotte. Why Charlotte, and how do you like it here? Well, I, I have a daughter here, and uh, about 10 years ago, my wife and I finally decided to escape Washington, D.C. Oh, you escaped? Yeah. We escaped. In the middle of the night? <laughs> Just about. <laughs> and uh, we looked around. I have a daughter in New Orleans. I have a son in Dallas. No Razorback ever wants to go to Texas. Okay. So, <laughs> and I love New Orleans to go there to eat, uh, but not to live. Gotcha. And so the daughter here was uh, had just had her first baby, and it was a likely spot. And once we got here, we've loved it. It's been the best move we've ever made. That's great. So, Webb, all good books uh, have an arc to them. They might start with a character you know, who's at rock bottom when the story opens. His life is in shambles. He's forced to overcome difficult and trying circumstances. Your life story uh, could have been a novel with a rock bottom, too. You were very successful. So I mentioned in your bio, but I left some things out, right? You did. Yeah. You did. One of the things I left out of your bio, which makes your, I think, your present-day story that much more interesting, is that in 1994, your career and personal life came crashing down. You resigned as Assistant Attorney General of the United States under President Bill Clinton. You pled guilty to wire fraud and tax fraud, and you went to federal prison for 21 months. So like a character in a good novel— you, the protagonist, you were on your back, right? I was, I was pretty low, as yeah. you can imagine. So we're not going to spend time on the details. This is not, yeah. we're not. This is not sixty minutes. This is not. We're not going to re, rehash. <laughs> I've done that. I've re, done that. Right. We're not going to rehash all that. That all that information is on the internet. But, but, but I am interested in this question. What I'd like to know is how that phase of your life has shaped your writing journey. That's a good question. I. I, the memoir I wrote, I actually wrote the first draft while I was in prison. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't think you can ever talk about or write about criminal justice or murder or mysteries or thrillers if you hadn't seen both sides of the fence. And I've seen both sides of the fence. I like the kid that I'm the only person who flew on Air Force One and Con Air in the same year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, the experience in prison, you know, being t- everything taken away from you. Where did you where did you where did you go on Air Force One and where did you end up on Con Air? Well, I went to Little Rock on Air Force One with the president on, on several occasions. Con Air was not as much fun. Right. You didn't you weren't in first class. There. I was not in first class. <laughs> and uh, they always the federal prison system uses the FedEx approach. If they're going to move you across the country, uh, they will first take you to Oklahoma City. Every prisoner goes to Oklahoma City. There's a prison actually at the airport in Oklahoma. Just waiting on you. Just waiting on you. You go, you spend a few days there, and then you're shipped out again. Uh, so I was going to Little Rock to, to, to appear before a grand jury. And so to do that, I had to go to Oklahoma, spend a week, go to Little Rock, uh, spend several nights in jail in Little Rock, and then fly back to Oklahoma City, and then ultimately come back to Cumberland, Maryland, where I was. So you said your first book, um, which was called Friends in High Places, a little twist there, could have been a country music song, right? That's exactly (laughs) what I I took it from, yes. (laughs) From the Friends? Garth Garth Brooks. Friends in Low Places, yeah. Okay. And that was published in 1997, um, but you said you began working on it in prison. Why did you 
write the book, and what was the theme of the book? Well, it was, it was meant to be redemptive. Um, I wanted to tell people what I'd done and, and hopefully learn some lessons from that. I wanted to talk about my life, and frankly, at the time, I needed money. I, mm. We didn't have anything left. They took everything away. And what, did that experience prove to be a cathartic experience for you to write that book? It, it was very cathartic. It was very cathartic and very difficult to do, especially the hard parts about talking about what I had done. Uh, it, it turned out to be very good for me to do that. Yeah, one of the um, authors we've had on the show, she's a very good author, local in the community here, Judy, Judy Goldman. She said, mm-hmm. and she's a memoirist, and she writes memoirs. She said, one time I thought this was interesting. She said, you know, when you write a memoir, you've got to be twice as hard on yourself as anybody else in the book. Did you follow that rule? I did. Yeah. I did. In fact, it, people would say when they would read drafts, say, you're being a little too tough, aren't you? And I said, no. It is you've got to do that. It, you can't, uh, when writing a memoir, ever uh, take it easy on yourself. It won't be truthful. Is it true that uh, Prosecutor Ken Starr tried to block the publication of that book? He did. He well, actually... He went into court and sought an injunction from it being published. What was he afraid of? I don't know. But I didn't. I didn't really think you weren't so. talking about him much, were you? I wasn't talking about him because as soon as I got out, he went after me again, and then a third time. Yeah, I, I, I read that, and uh, I read that you know even after you'd served your time for what you pled guilty to in 1994. He came out. Of course, he was investigating, you know, the Clintons and other things at the time. So, uh, why was it he was coming after you again and again and again? Uh, several people in Arkansas uh, didn't do me much of a favor by telling uh, Ken Starr that if you want to know where all the bodies are buried for the Clintons, he's the man you've got to get to roll on the Clintons. So he thought you knew more than you did. He believed that I knew where all the bodies were buried. Okay. So did these experiences, Webb, um, of being a prosecutor at the highest level of government yourself and then being on the receiving end of what some might, uh, looking back, call an overly zealous prosecution <laughs> at the highest level of government? My wife certainly would agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Did, that uh, did that color your view of the legal system? And uh, second part of the question, has it offered you some good material for your writing? It has offered me some good material. Uh, and it has, I think it's really been eye-opening uh, for somebody who's been on one side of the law uh, to all of a sudden experience uh, the other side. Hmm. I learned what prison is like, really like. I mean, uh, I remember Dan Rostenkowski, I don't know if you remember him, he was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Right when we both got out the first time, for me, the got out, uh, we were on a panel, and somebody asked Dan, I said, Dan, if you had to do it over again, what would you do? And he said, you know, I would do everything differently. As chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, as a leader in the House, what we did as far as passing laws and, uh, and imposing heavy, heavy sentences on young people is just wrong. And it, it really gave you an insight of who's actually going to prison and why they're going to prison. So did you meet people of all different stripes in prison? Oh, absolutely. I met from a, a mafia boss to mm-hmm. a president of a savings and loan. You know, right. uh, Lots of young people 
there for drug-related crimes that didn't need to be there. But but you also, um, of course, you, you did some things which you owned up to, but but the whole, you know, thought they knew where the body was buried and he was after you, they're moving you around, getting you to testify about different issues. Uh, you you kind of use that a little bit as a theme in your book, The East End, with the power and the corruption that can happen in the prosecutorial position, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, there's a special prosecutor in the East End. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's not a favorable character, yeah. as you can imagine. Dog Fletcher, I think he Dog Fletcher. Yeah, I love the name. We'll get we'll get to Dog in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so speaking of Jack Patterson, uh, your book, The East End, which we're featuring on the show today, um, you know, you've got a blurb on the cover of the book. And... Uh, I referred to it in the opening. It's from President uh, Bill Clinton. Bill, Bill Clinton, yes. And uh, it's nice to have a former president pitch your book, right? It helps. It helps. <laughs> <laughs> At least you get maybe half the country buying your book, right? Well, I, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. He hadn't carried that much weight. <laughs> he not carry that much weight yet. Um, so h- how is it uh, this whole connection with Bill Clinton? I mean, you—, you I think I remember from talking with you that after your troubles in the in the mid '90s, um, I mean, you were friends with the Clintons. Uh, you hired Hillary Clinton to work in your law firm, the Rose Law Firm in, in Arkansas. Um, you were, you know, sort of a confidant to, to to Governor Clinton for about ten years, and then when when all this came crashing down, you didn't hear from either of them for about sixteen years, right? That's correct. Yeah. But that's that's the way things are. Right. I don't. Uh, uh, there's a rule mm-hmm. that if somebody's been convicted or is under investigation, you don't want the president or the first lady or anybody in high office to be photographed or seen. Yeah. The uh, optics are just too The too optics bad. are too bad. They could be used. Yeah, but he wasn't president from 2000 to 2010, and he still didn't. They still didn't have contact with you. Well, she was running sure. for office okay. then. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the problem. Yeah. he could have. Yeah, he could have, but for the fact that she was running. Okay, so but but you had this friendship for years. There's a void in that relationship for 16 years, and then something. So he's now promoting your book. So something <laughs> happened. What tell tell us that story? Well, at about 10 years ago, I, I was told that I needed a liver transplant or I was going to die. Uh, and that was traumatic enough, as you can imagine. And when Bill heard that I was in bad shape physically, he got on a plane that day and flew down. Uh, optics be damned, so to speak. And did you have a good conversation? We had a conversation all afternoon. Uh, talked about the Razorbacks, talked about <laughs> things that people uh, never understood that we talked about. Just, old, like, just old friend stuff. Just old friend stuff. We used to play golf together a lot. Mm-hmm. And people would come running up to me after the golf game and say, what did he say? What did he say? And I said, we talked about golf. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what kind of golfer was he? he he's a pretty good golfer. He's yeah. a pretty good golfer. How do you define good? He was at that time probably a ten or twelve handicap, but he never practiced. That he is. never. He, I couldn't even get him on the practice screen to warm up. Okay. Uh, he would just go out. He never had enough time. He was always late uh, anywhere. Uh, so uh, we would go out. So they held the first tee for you, right? Yeah, <laughs> they did. Now, once he was president, it was a little different because you've got the Secret Service who's clearing the golf course for you. So to that's, speak. that's pretty nice. Yeah. 
Let's talk about Jack Patterson for a minute, okay. uh, your protagonist. He's an antitrust lawyer with a strategic mind who can handle most any kind of case, civil or criminal. Is that too good to believe? or? Well, it's probably a little too good to believe. But yeah. the reason I, I, want to, I want to be like Jack. You know, I mean, Jack. <laughs> well, there are a lot of lawyers in Arkansas who think they are Jack. They, they do, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, I tried to pick probably the most boring lawyers there are, which are the antitrust lawyers, who essentially yeah. just read economic reports. And yeah, but that's not what Jack Patterson seems to do. Well, Jack, Jack, on one hand, is an antitrust lawyer and reads boring economic reports. But then his friends tend to get him into big trouble, and yeah. not they're in big trouble, and they get him in big trouble. Yeah. We, so, Webb, I read uh, you gave an interview. You were out doing a lot of tours and talks about your experiences, and you gave an interview uh, to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in which you said, you know, life is full of adversity. I've tried to react and take the good with the bad and learn from both. Is that how Jack Patterson approaches his cases? Does he take the good with the bad and try to learn from both? I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know when you're about to be hung in the opening of the book, that's a pretty bad, <laughs> pretty bad start, right? That's a bad start. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Usually something bad happens to somebody else when I start one of my books, okay. but this time it was to Jack. He seems like sort of the James Bond of lawyers, always finding his way out of a jam in your books, uh, you know, for either himself or his client. Uh, but again, he's you know he's this well-to-do lawyer with a large staff of people. Are there, are there that many lawyers out there in the world? Do you think that are like Jack, who can, on the one hand, like he did in the East End, he's negotiating a contract for his client, uh, you, you know, with the NFL, one of one of the one of the teams, while at the same time he's handling this case against this woman who who they won't tell her what the indictment is, and he's being pursued by people that want to kill him. <laughs> well, I hope not many lawyers are being uh, threatened. Yeah. Uh, but Jack, Jack is unique. I don't think there's anybody like Jack. Most lawyers tend to gravitate to one area or another. Like yeah. David Rudolph, for example. David's a great lawyer, but he's yeah. primarily a criminal defense lawyer. He, does, he doesn't practice antitrust law on the side. You, you've written, I think, four or five books in this series, right? Right. This is the fifth. When did Jack Patterson occur to you? Was he in the shower walking, walking one day? Were you, how, did, how, did he, how did he come to your mind? Well, in my first book, I really wanted to tell a story about growing up in the South uh, in the 60s and the 70s uh, and what it was like because I'm a firm believer of not uh, judging people based on the way things were back then by today's standards. Mm. And I wanted to tell some stories uh, about what it was like to grow up. And Jack was the kid. And no, I'm a lawyer, so I know what lawyers do and how they practice. So that was a natural progression. Yeah. So, I, I, Webb, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It was, it's really a great beach read. I read it on a, in a day and a half with a, with a cooler beer beside me. Good, Down, good, at, down at Riceville good. Beach. Uh, uh, and we'll talk about the East End characters in a moment, but... Uh, you know, you say in, in your author's note at the front of the book that the reality of the East End is very much a part of the landscape of America. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, every city, uh, every major city at least, has an East End. We may call it the other side of the tracks. We may call it the West End. may call it the South Side. Uh, in Little Rock, there really is an East End, and it's a place where nobody wants to go. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to live. Uh, and, and society just kind of tends to ignore it. The police don't want to go patrol it. 
so poorest of the poor live yeah. in the east end or the west side. And sadly, uh, there's those locations in every city in Charlotte, for example. Yeah, so let's talk about the plot a minute. Someone's trying to kill Jack. We know that because you've already read about that part <laughs> of it. And then those who tried to kill Jack are being killed themselves to make it look like Jack is responsible. And then for unknown reasons, the governor appoints a special prosecutor to investigate a character named Jana, who's a friend of Jack's, and that's not clear why. And then the special prosecutor and the judge, it looks like they might be conspiring, and it's not until late in the book until you reveal what the charges are against Jana. I was curious about that. Is that how the system works? Uh, do, do prosecutors withhold reasons for indictment till the last minute? Sometimes? Till the very last minute, a lot of times, yes. Yeah. Okay. Especially in a high-profile case okay. uh, where they will sometimes arrest you and you have no idea what the charges are. Uh, which kind of leads into my next discussion about prosecutorial misconduct. You've got a little scene here. It's pretty short. I'm going to have you read it in just a second. It's, uh, but, but before we do that, let's set up the, the characters in the scene. You've got an assistant prosecutor named Kate. You've got a person named Sam, and you've got Dog Fletcher. Who are these people? Uh, Kate's an assistant prosecutor uh, in, in Little Rock for the county prosecutor's office. Uh, Sam is the county prosecutor. He's also Jack's best friend since high school. And he's, he's conflicted because his girlfriend is Jana, the, the woman who's about to be indicted by the special prosecutor. And the special prosecutor is? Dog Fletcher. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that name? I, it just came to me. And it's not I, D-O-G, it's D-A-W-G. D-A-W-G. Because right? you got to drag out the, the yeah, doll, you, dog. Yeah, you got to. You got a Arkansas draw dog, okay. and dog dog wears overalls into court yep. and spits tobacco, and is just meaner <laughs> than a junkyard dog. We would call those when I would go down east to be in court. Uh, you know, just the good old country lawyer. You know, yeah. you better hold on to your wallet when yeah. you when you go into court with them. Uh, all right, so let's let's do this read. Okay, how did you decide to become a prosecutor? I asked, trying to change the subject. I was one of a hundred of idealistic young lawyers fresh out of law school, you know, ready to fight for the little guy, right the world's wrongs. But I got lucky. Your friend Sam hired me at the public defender's office. That job was a real eye-opener, nothing like what I expected. The hours were exhausting, the cases were hopeless, and the pay was miserable. I might have made more money selling shoes. That said, Sam was a terrific boss, and my colleagues kept me from going crazy or throwing in the towel. I learned more practical law in six months than I had in three years of law school. When Sam became the district's prosecutor, I had three choices. I could remain at the public defender's office, go into private practice, or go with Sam. By then, I'd seen enough to know a prosecutor even at the local level, is a powerful person. I understand why Hillary Clinton said her dream job was to be a U.S. attorney. A prosecutor can change a person's life, even end it. Good people need to fill those positions, not jerks like Dog Fletcher. You're right, and if all prosecutors were like you and Sam, the world would be a better place. But they're not. If Sam leaves, will you stay? I ask. Probably not. Working with Sam has been a terrific experience, but he's right. 
when you become jaded and cynical, it's time to move. So, Webb, you mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton in this uh, in this little section here. Is that statement true that being a U.S. attorney was her dream job? That was. That where, was. Where, where did you hear her say that? I heard her say it to me a long time ago. Really, like back when she was practicing when law. When she was practicing law. And what was her reason? What? I forgot what the circumstances were, but she said it to me more than once. That really? This was her dream job to be a U.S. attorney. Well, she saw a. A bigger dream job, I yeah, guess. <laughs> I think her dream expanded, <laughs> let's put it that way. It expanded. Now, now you said you had contact with Bill Clinton. Have yeah. you had any further contact with no, her? No, I have not. And, you know, again, she's been running up until recently. Right. Uh, and so we haven't. Uh, I've talked to Bill about her. Uh, he was here with uh, James Patterson. Yeah, he's, he's writing too, right? Yeah, he, and he had an event here, and I went over and talked to him, spent some time with him. What did he tell you about his writing experience? He loved it. He really yeah. did. You know, he helped edit. Uh, how much did he write of the Jack of that book? Well, I listened, I listened to the whole event, and they, you know, they pretty much shared the burden, so to speak, is really? what, what James Patterson was telling everybody. Well, it, so, Webb, now, James Patterson, when, when his name's on the front of the book, a lot of people are going to go pick it up. Did you think, oh, well, I mean, I got Jack Patterson. Maybe they'll pick it up by accident. I, no, I didn't do it that way. I didn't that. It, uh, the name, the initial name of the guy was Bill Patterson, and for okay. some reason my Distant. wife didn't like it. Didn't like it. Didn't Just like it Bill. doesn't work, so didn't, we changed it didn't to like James. Bill. And speaking of your wife, um, she helps you with the books, right? She does. She's my first editor. She edits the first draft of every book I've written. And is she hard on you like she needs to be? Oh, very hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes our marriage is at risk, let's yeah. put it that way. Well, you got to have a good uh, an editor that's willing to be honest with you, right? Right, right. Yeah, or it doesn't work. Um, so let's talk about Dog for a second, right. uh, the no-holds-barred prosecutor. He's out to get Jack Patterson and, and Jack's client. It's unclear why through the book. And you have an interesting search and seizure scene here. So we already know now in the book that she's being pursued by Dog Fletcher. And so this scene you're going to read, could you set that up just a second? Yeah. Jana was the target. And uh, one of the things that they don't understand is why Jana is the target, but also why they're so set on getting all of her records, every her computers and everything else. And, and just to, to provide the listeners a little more context, Jana is connected with a uh, – medical facility that uh, operates in the East End, right? Right. Jana started the East End Clinic for the poor in Little Rock. And and she also encouraged the legislature to set up three other clinics in other parts of the state for the poor. And she supervised those as well. So she, she was essentially the lead doctor on these clinics for the poor throughout the state of Arkansas. And, and as I recall, someone high in government encouraged the, the governor to appoint this special prosecutor, thinking that she's done something illegal in connection with running these clinics. Right? That's that's correct. She, yeah. He he initially demanded that the local prosecutor Sam uh, go after her, and when Sam refused to do so, then he convinced the governor to appoint a special prosecutor. All right, so pick and it up, and that's Dog Fletcher. Okay, so pick it up with a dog search and seizure here. All right. Five or six troopers were standing on the porch outside the wide-open front door. The largest one blocked the entryway. Sorry, but you can't come in. A court-ordered search is underway. Trooper, my name is Jack Patterson. I am Dr. Hall's attorney. 
you deny me access for even one second, I will sue you for violating my client's civil rights, and I will have your badge. Do yourself a favor. Step aside. He took one look at Clovis, who seemed to have grown taller on the spot, and moved. Clovis thanked him and followed me in. Several more troopers were milling around in the entryway, and I could hear loud voices in the kitchen. Honey, I'm asking you for the last time. Where is your computer and your cell phone? Dog barked. On advice of counsel, I declined to answer your question. Janet was wearing scrubs, and she and Sam were sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee. A copy of the morning paper lay on the table. If you don't answer, I'm going... You're going to what, Fletcher? I interrupted. He whirled around. How'd you get here so soon? My driver knows a shortcut. What is happening here? Who invited the press, and what's behind this dawn raid nonsense? One of your troopers told me to... A court-ordered search is underway. I'm concerned evidence could be destroyed. Normal procedure. And you know it, he answered, thumbs hooked confidently in his suspenders. May I see the warrant? Sam handed it to me. Sure enough, it allowed Fletcher to search the premises and take possession of Janice's computers, other electronic devices, files, and business records. I wonder what Fletcher had told the judge to get such a broad warrant. Patterson, you tell this little woman to tell me where her computer's phones and files are, or I'll charge her with obstruction. Fletcher blustered. Mr. Fletcher, never refer to my client as this little woman again. Her name is Dr. Hall, and I expect you to show her the respect she's earned. As I'm sure you heard, on my advice, she will not answer your question. The location of her computers and files isn't protected by the Fifth Amendment. She has to tell me where they are. I disagree, and I've instructed her not to answer any question you may pose. He was flustered, and I wasn't ready to let him off the hook. I will tell you, however, that if those items exist, she wouldn't keep them with her underwear or nightgowns. Tell your troopers to quit fondling her clothes and get the hell out of her bedroom. His face turned bright red. You'll re- you will regret your smart-ass attitude, Patterson. My men have a legal right to search every inch of the premises. I guess you think that includes asking the press to join them. I don't know who invited the press. So dog has no idea who invited the press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is, that a, is that a typical ploy that some prosecutors use in, in, in some states? Uh, and dawn raids and having the press go with them, uh, it's, it's meant to imply the guy's guilty before you've ever gone to trial. Putting on a theatrical show for the public. Right? That's right. But it's also meant to... to st- get people to be convinced of the, a person's guilt before they're not innocent before they're proven guilty, so to speak. And I'm sure you had fun and couldn't resist with the little uh, tagline, dog barked. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. All right. So hey, listeners, uh, we're going to take a little quick break here. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Webb Hubble. We're going to do the writing life segment, uh, Got uh, another read where you learn about uh, Judge Perdone and Prosecutor Dog Fletcher conspiring in a courtroom scene. 
might have time for a little uh, a little discussion read from the 18th Green, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Darlene Harris, a local criminal defense and business law attorney in the Charlotte area. She does everything from high-level murder trials to DUIs and drug cases. She's also uh, doing work as a business attorney, helping people, including authors, protect their ideas and work through contracts, trademarks, and copyrights. And today we got Webb Hubble, we've got lawyers, we've got legal thrillers, criminal issues. Uh, hey, Darlene, you're in, this, uh, you're in this world too, right? I am. Yeah, and so what do you do? So on the criminal side of my business, um, as you mentioned, we do everything uh, from high-profile murder trials um, all the way down to traffic tickets, anything in between, um, drug cases, DUIs, all of it. Yeah, well, you know, we got a certain clientele that listens to Charlotte's podcast. Maybe they're going to need your services, right? (laughs) They they might. We're we're one decision. Everybody's one decision away from a jury trial. (laughs) Oh, that's that's interesting. Well, hopefully they'll need it more on the traffic ticket side. Okay, but on the the other side, the the business side, uh, you work with us. Authors, uh, how do you do that? So what I do for authors, um, copyrights, trademarks, my job is to uh, reviewing and drafting contracts because authors get a lot of contracts um, for their services is to make sure that you're not getting taken advantage of and that we're protecting your rights. Mm. And you enjoy to read too? Yeah. I do. I yeah. do. What do you like to read? So, of course, my favorite is uh, murder mysteries, thrillers, anything suspense- suspenseful. Mm. And your law practice can sometimes be suspenseful, right? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Uh, and so if people want to find you because they've got a traffic ticket, and, and uh, let's hope not more than that, but if they do as well, mm-hmm. and if they need help on their contracts or whatever, where do they find you? They can find me at oaklg.com. That's O-A-K-L-G.com. And that's uh, Oakhurst Legal Group? Yes, sir, it is. Hey, Darlene, thanks. Thank you. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Webb Hubble, author of The East End, The 18th Green, and uh, several other novels involving... Uh, well, involving Jack Patterson, the lawyer to all lawyers, and, and these legal <laughs> le- legal thrillers. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, your writing life just a second, okay. uh, Webb. Um, you know, as I said, every every good story has a character who changes, and you know, one of your changes after all your adversity, first in the '90s, and then with your life-threatening illness in 2010 was to become a writer. Right. Why? Well, you kind of look around. uh, After I had the liver transplant, I could no longer work for the company I was working for. And we decided to escape D.C. Not many good things happened to me when I was in (laughs) D.C. Why did you go back? (laughs) So uh, So once we moved here, my children actually asked, what are you going to do now? You know? Yeah. Uh, and I was getting pretty old, uh, so I'm not able to get a job very easily. So I, I've always wanted to tell a story, like I said, about boys growing up in, in Arkansas and what it was like. And so I said, I think I'll write the great American novel. <laughs> well, I hadn't quite done that, but yeah. I'm having the time of my life writing. Yeah. And the first book that you wrote, what year was that? Well, the first fiction. Yeah, the first fiction book. First fiction was in 2010. And you were how old at that time? I was, uh, what am I now? 62. You were 62. So that's that's hope for anybody out there that wants to start start a book writing career, I think there's a novel in everybody and uh, certainly can do it at 62. It took me a while, that first one. Mm -hmm. uh, And I learned a lot of lessons writing that first one. But we finally got it published. 
So you, you write uh, a plot-driven book with, with good pace, but you also try to tackle uh, some important social issues. You said that one of the things you told me was that you try to do that in every book. Uh, explain what you try to do and why you do it. I do. I, around a thriller or a mystery, I try to always talk about something that's important or people may not know a lot about. Uh, in my first book, I talked about the fact that Americans are funding terrorism by purchasing our art artifacts that have been stolen by terrorists and sold on the international market. In Ginger Snaps, I talked about uh, uh, asset forfeiture and the fact you can not even be found guilty or even charged, but the federal government can seize your assets, all of your assets. Uh, and so in each book, I try to do a little bit. And in the East End, I want to talk about rural health care and health care for the poor. I also wanted people to be aware that doctors can be prosecuted for just about any, any patient they see. All those federal forms are nothing but a mail and wire fraud risk. Well, that's not good because we need doctors. We don't want to scare them off. Uh, right? no, I know, and it, yeah, I wanted, but I wanted to keep everybody aware of how, how uh, in a, in a wire fraud case, how little you have to do to get in trouble. Hmm. So, what do you think attracts readers to these uh, thrillers? Well, I hope they're a good read. They're entertaining. Uh, they're believable. You. Fiction has to be more believable than nonfiction, <laughs> to some extent. Right. Uh, yeah, because so, it, if it doesn't ring true, you're going to lose the reader during the— That's absolutely yeah. right. And I, I'm serious. I think more so in, in fiction than in nonfiction. Now, there are very few courtroom scenes in this particular legal thriller. And right. when there was action in court, it, it was dramatic, but it was brief, and it didn't involve any witness testimony. Was that by design— uh, to have a sort of a less is more approach in the courtroom? No, no it, it was meant to kind of emphasize uh, this partnership between Dog Fletcher yeah. and the judge. A lot of back back alley stuff going the, on. All back room, back, back room, room stuff back that hallway, goes on. Yeah. Yes. Back hallway. And that you think that really goes on, or are you being a little dramatic? Uh, I grew up in Arkansas and practiced <laughs> law in Arkansas. I can't say for North Carolina, but it certainly happens in Arkansas. All right. What about routine? Do you have a process you follow? I do. Uh, I do the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Okay, I've but it's read, a routine nonetheless. <laughs> I've read that everybody's supposed to do the most important thing first and that authors are supposed to write early in the morning. Well, <laughs> I do the exact opposite. I've got to get all the mosquitoes out of the room. I've got to answer my email, run errands, pay the bills, do whatever's little little flies in the in the room are going on i've got to clear the clear the desk so to speak and then you feel like you can be creative at that point. then i can be creative because your mind is working as i got to take care of the the day-to-day -day stuff first and right. once i've called up then interesting because some people say don't let the day-to-day -day clutter your mind wake up get into it that's exactly <laughs> i hear it all the time i read about grisham who says you got to get up at seven in the morning and go yeah. do it at, and usually by one o'clock after I've had lunch, I will sit down and write four hours, four hours, hmm. every day. 
So how, how do you craft your books? Do you plot first, characters first, outline, a little both? What? I don't outline. Again, I'm, I violate every rule, yeah. but I have no idea how I'm going to finish a book when I start it. You just keep it all in your head as you go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what I usually do is try to dig as deep a hole as I can for Jack and then hope that the characters will start talking to me and I'll figure a way out. So far, it's worked, but on this next one I'm writing, I'm not sure I can pull it off. Well, that that's a good a good approach. Uh, it's it's a tried and true method of storytelling, right? Yeah. To have your character start off at a very low place and yeah. and try to work his way out of it. Um, so I noticed something interesting about your book: uh, a point of view shift right off the bat. In the first chapter, you're in third person uh, with that's Jack right. Patterson, and then the rest of the book is in first person. Right. What, did did your editor miss something? Was that on purpose? Was no, that, that was on purpose. Yeah. That was on purpose. Tell, tell me what you were thinking about that. I was well, curious. I, when I first started writing, and some of my other books are totally in the first person, uh, but I, several people said, why don't you write in the third person? So you gave him a, you gave him a chapter. So I gave him a chapter, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and now I have, every now and then, I'll, I'll insert a little bit of a third person, but it's on I, I kind of like the first-person yeah. uh, way of telling a story. Yeah, it, it, it's a good way to do it. I mean, both both are good. Third-person close is, a, is close to first-person. Right. But uh, it's nice to get in the head of the protagonist. So a few final writing life questions. Uh, Webb, do you think if your life had not taken such a turn as it did in the 90s that you would have ever ended up as a writer? No, I probably wouldn't. I would have probably, uh, you know, the, the my favorite time was when I was Chief Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court. And I would al- had always hoped to get on the bench again. Uh, but I didn't. And that's not possible. Uh, but I'm ha- like I said, as it turned out, I'm having the time of my life. Yeah, so I'm you, having more fun writing than I've ever had practicing. Life. And that sort of led into my sort of follow-up question there. I know you missed out on being on the bench, but uh, how do you feel about the fact you might have missed out on this uh, on this writing part of your life? Well, that, w- that would have been a real disappointment. Like I said, once you start it, uh, I'm having the time of my life. And what do you try to offer readers with your writing, and what do you try to offer yourself with your writing? That's a tough question. Mm-hmm. Uh for the readers, I, like I said, I try to include something they don't know or give them some insights into some issues that maybe they should pay more attention to, mm-hmm. especially criminal justice. Uh, for myself, uh, it's, it's a way to probably get out, out some of those issues or some of those things I would have liked to have done. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be Jack Patterson. You know? <laughs> well, I, as I said, I want to be like Jack. Yeah, know? I want to be like Jack. I mean, he's he's financially well off. Yeah. He's except for the fact that somebody's trying to kill him all the time. Yeah. You know? and, and and he's got a great support staff, and they're always like Jack. You know, yeah. what's next? And Jack's like, Well, I, I got this. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're good. All right, we're going to shift now to uh, to corruption uh, in the law and. Uh, I once asked uh, John Gresham at a book signing, I said, why do you always, I said, you always make judges and lawyers sound corrupt and everything. I said, why do you do that? And he said, well, you know, for the most part, most 
lawyers and judges are good people, but uh, that doesn't sell books. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, you have to bring some excitement into the book, That's right? true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. So let's uh, let's set this scene up for a second. Um, we are gonna we're gonna be in a courtroom scene. That's about the time that Jack's going to learn what's in the indictment. Um, and but Judge Perdone and Dog Fletcher have been sort of, you know, setting this whole thing. Tell tell us what's going on here in the book. What's happening is is that Jack's expecting to come in and and uh, have an ind- you know the first hearing, uh, and he's uh, nervous about it. His client is been taken away. Because he doesn't know what's going to be in the indictment. And right? he has no idea what the charges are going to be. Taken away, but his client has been arrested. She's going to be brought into court in this scene. Right. But but Judge Perdone has Jack and Dog back for a little right. talk before and, ja- and Jack's made it clear to Dog there's not he's not going to plead guilty. He's not going to take this offer that they've made that she go to prison and plead guilty to a felony. Uh uh, he, hadn't, he doesn't even know what the charges are, and Dog's saying either you plead guilty or she'll go to prison for the rest of her life. All right, let's pick it up with the uh, judge in chambers. Okay. The judge's chambers were an expansive set of rooms connected by tall doors. I couldn't help but notice an old-fashioned coat rack standing behind the judge's desk. Hanging from the rack was a belt that held a pearl-handled six-shooter in a leather holster. Each loop on the belt held a bullet, like the ones bandits carried in bad westerns. The bathroom door was wide open, and I could see a tall, dark-haired woman applying red lipstick. I wondered when John Wayne would show. Dog Fletcher and Ray Spears were sitting at the table in the corner of the room with a man in the cowboy hat, who I feared had to be the judge. It had to be Judge Purdom. He was sure no John Wayne. Fletcher was smoking a cigar, looking like he had just brought the herd home. Join us, Mr. Patterson. Pay no attention to Doris. She's primping. So now the woman in the bathroom had a name. I would later find out that Doris served the judge not only as his clerk, but also in a personal capacity. Sam would warn me not to get on her bad side. I took the empty chair at the table and waited. We might have been old friends about to deal a hand of poker. Purdom spoke with a drawl. I expect this morning to be straightforward. I'll ask you if you waive the reading of the indictment, you'll say yes. I'll ask you how your client pleads to the charges, you'll say guilty. I'll ask your client a few questions about whether she understands the consequences, she'll say she does. Then I'll release her into your custody until sentencing. Fletcher and Spears were grinning. The wagons had circled, and per the script, the Indians would lose. Trying to curb my temper, I turned to Purdom. Your Honor, there's been a misunderstanding. I have yet to see the indictment. I can't waive its reading until I've seen it. Fletcher interrupted. Sorry, I guess your boy forgot to pick it up. He shoved a multi-page document across the table. I ignored him. My client is not about to enter a plea of guilty to charges she hasn't seen. Whatever the charges, my client will plead not guilty. Judge Purdom shot Fletcher a glance and said, Well, you can't instruct your client if you haven't read the indictment. 
that's understandable. Take your time, read the charges, and there are no surprises. We can proceed as I outlined. Judge, I will read the pleadings, as you suggest, and if there are no surprises, I'll waive its reading in open court. But let me be clear about one thing, surprise or no surprise, Dr. Hall will plead not guilty. I didn't like hearing him mutter, then your client's a damn fool. Pardon me, Judge, I didn't catch what you said. I didn't say a damn thing, he growled, then shouted, Candy, get your ass in here. This conversation is going on the record. <laughs> okay, well, I, I get the sense that you enjoyed Westerns growing up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got we got the John Wayne, we got the pearl-handled uh, Six shooter. Um, we got uh, we got a lot going on here. We got a, we got a judge who wants to run a courtroom with uh, with iron fist, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Um, have you ever been in front of uh, judges in similar situations? I, I have to admit that I have been in a courtroom where a judge carried his pistol into the courtroom. Really? Yes. Yeah. And I have been in a courtroom where the judge was told everybody how how the cow ate the cabbage. So where did where was the pistol carrying judge? What what venue was that? That was in Arkansas. In Arkansas, so yeah. it's permissible yeah. in Arkansas. Yes. <laughs> Just in case. I mean, I don't. I, nobody questioned the judge about the gun. <laughs> could you see it? Uh, was it because uh, usually the judge wearing a robe, right? So right, but he wore it on the outside of his robe. Now that's an image right there. That's right. <laughs> that is an image. Like I said, all novels are p- partially autobiographical. Okay, well that's good. Okay, so we got this other read. Uh, it's kind of connected here when they bring in Jana uh, to to the hearing, and I'd like you to read some of that as well. And then we'll we'll talk a little bit before we uh, shift to the 18th green. And, and just so to set this up, Webb, this is a conversation between Jack Patterson and Judge Perdon, right? That's correct. Okay, take it away. May I inquire why she was given a shower? You'd be surprised how many criminals have lice. My policy requires criminals to sh- shower with lice-killing shampoo before they appear in the, my courtroom. I look after my court personnel. You have a problem with that, Mr. Patterson? I ignored his question. Your Honor, with all due respect, please quit treating and referring to my client as a criminal. I struggled to maintain my composure. Purdom turned a dark glare of annoyance on me. Sensing the judge is about to blow his lines, Fletcher spoke. Your Honor, the prosecution has no objection to the removal of Dr. Hall's restraints. Taking the hint, Judge Purdom responded, the decision is mine to make, Counselor, but given my observation of her demeanor, I will instruct the bailiff to remove her restraints. For future appearances in this courtroom, the defendant may dress in civilian attire. Bailiff. The bailiff made a big display out of pulling out his keys and slowly removing Jana's handcuffs and leg irons. She remained silent, dealing with circumstances surprisingly well. I couldn't say the same for Sam, who looked truly miserable. Brian attempted to hand me his notes, but I waved him away. The bailiff finally completed his task and led Jana to the defense table. She sank into her chair next to me, visibly trembling. Judge Purdom asked, Satisfied, counsel? Thank you, Your Honor. I hope my disdain wasn't too obvious. Your Honor, I noticed there are several photographers present in the courtroom. 
may I inquire about the court's policy regarding cameras in the courtroom? Pictures of my client in shackles and a prison jumpsuit will taint a potential jury pool. You may inquire. The court believes in public justice and cameras in the courtroom. Press is welcome, and they are free to take pictures of anything that interests them as long as they stay behind the rail and don't interfere with the proceeding. Once we have a jury, the rules will change, but for now they remain. Fletcher added, for the record, the prosecution has no objections to cameras in the courtroom. I bet they didn't. The image presented to the public in the, in the local papers and on TV would be that of a guilty woman, a woman with wet, unkempt hair, dressed in an orange jumpsuit. All right, Webb, so isn't that always true with the uh, mugshot we see in the paper? You know, That's true. The mugshot <laughs> is always the worst image you can imagine. Somebody accused of this, and you look at that picture, and you say, well, that person's got to be guilty. Yes, right? yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, so Judge Padone's looking after his uh, court personnel, lice-killing you know, shampoo. <laughs> did you ever have to experience that I or- ordeal? I did. And, and uh, you, you used a phrase with me as we were talking about this beforehand called diesel therapy. What, what is that? Diesel therapy is where uh, once once you've been convicted, but they may still be trying to get information out of you or they may want you to be more cooperative. Uh, a prosecutor will order you transported to another uh, location, uh, another jail. And to do that, they may put you on a bus. That's where the diesel comes from and go from county jail to county jail. And that way, nobody knows where you are, even your own lawyer. And uh, sometimes you go in some pretty nasty jails. And along the way, do they give you a shower every time? Uh, Lice-killing shampoo, yes. It'll turn your hair orange if you do it too much. So they're moving you around on the bus, and they're putting you through this ordeal every time, like Judge Perdon put... Right. Put Jana through for no apparent reason. Right? Uh, I think the re- real reason is to show you who's in charge. Okay. Which is exactly what the judge is trying to do in this right. Uh, right. session here. And, uh, of course, Dog Fletcher, for the record, has no objection to cameras in the courtroom. Absolutely right? not. No. <laughs> Particularly in that situation. Yeah. All right. So uh, engaging read, as I said, listeners, uh, you know, pick up this book and read it. You'll enjoy it. But uh, one more we're going to talk about real quick before we finish up today um you wrote a book called the 18th green does it have anything to do with golf uh well there's a murder on the 18th green but uh, that's how it starts out very 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 little about golf uh but uh, a little bit jack's a big golfer he loves to play golf all right set set that book up for us what what, what's going on in 18th green in the 18th green uh right at first there's a body found on the 18th green of a columbia country club in uh in in maryland and uh, we don't know why, what's the connection uh, between the body being found on the 18th green. And what happens is that Jack's uh, kind of mentor and second father's daughter is, is indicted uh, for espionage, for selling military secrets to Israel, one of our allies. Mm. And Jack is drawn in to represent her. Uh, and then, but again, uh, there are, is a lot of mystery involved uh, behind why is she being charged? What she's? Why would she have sold military secrets to Israel? Uh, and uh, there are a lot of twists and turns in this one. 
Okay, and I'm just going to have you read like a couple paragraphs of this prologue here and uh, just to give us a flavor for what's happening on the 18th green. A decent perimeter fence surrounded the course, but critters found a way in. Deer were a constant nuisance, and there had been a few coyote sightings, but deer and usually coyotes run at the site of a golf cart, and this lump wasn't moving. Steve was sure he was looking at a drunken duffer sleeping it off. It wouldn't be the first time. Whoever he was, he wouldn't appreciate being discovered, so Steve approached gingerly. He knew that an embarrassed club member could make an employee's life miserable. A club manager in Virginia lost his job after he interrupted a member and another member's wife playing tennis sans clothing on a clay court late at night. The club's board decided that the manager used poor judgment in disturbing the embarrassed couple. At least he should have let them complete their match. No job had a shorter lifespan than that of a country club manager. He feigned a loud cough, hoping the noise would rouse the sleeping man. No such luck. A broken rake lying just off the green caught his eye, and he wondered absently why it was there. He called out, Hey, fella! Still, there was no movement. Steve sighed, leaned down, and shook the man. The inert figure didn't move. Gathering himself, he hurried back to the cart where he reached for the walkie-talkie under the dash. Josh, we've got a problem. There's a dead man on the 18th green. Call 911 now. All right, body on page one, right? Body on page one, <laughs> yes. So that's that's sort of the typical formula for, for a mystery, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so do you, do you see these as kind of a combination between mysteries and thrillers? Yeah, suspense thrillers, suspense, mi- mysteries, yeah. yes. Yeah. And where'd you get this idea about the country club couple playing tennis without any clothes on? Well, again, it's a little bit of based on that, truth. Does that happen in Arkansas? It, it <laughs> might have. Might have. Are they wearing holsters? No, no. They were without clothing altogether. when they were interrupted. They didn't, they didn't have a gun on. Just they didn't have, even have a gun. Okay. Well, Webb, it's, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Uh, I want to thank you. Um, the, the information listeners about uh, Webb is going to be in the show notes. We're going to have links to his website. Uh, pictures of his books, uh, other information about how you can uh, can get in touch with him. Uh, Webb, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>